0: Well, hello
1: and welcome to the SRB podcast. I'm your host, Sean Gillery, and as always, I'm joined by Rusana Novikova and Margaret Budik. As you know, the SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, if you enjoy what we have, what we're giving you here, please take a moment to become a patron by going to patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to srbpodcast.org and find that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. Okay, so here uh, is—this week's interview, I guess, is our May 9th interview. It's about World War II, and specifically an interview with Jeffrey Haas about the siege of Leningrad. So, Margaret, why don't you go ahead and introduce Jeffrey?
2: Sure. Jeffrey Haas is an associate professor in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at the University of Richmond, and his new book is The Human Condition Under Siege in the Blockade of Leningrad, 1941 to 1944, published by Oxford University Press. Here's Jeffrey Haas.
1: So, Jeff, it's, it's nice to talk to you. Um, you have this new book, Wartime Suffering and Survival The Human Condition Under the Siege in the Blockade of Leningrad, 1941 to 44. And, you know, there, there have been many books, as you well know, on the blockade. Um, and so I'm kind of curious what drew you to, to write about it.
3: There are several uh, forces, events that kind of pushed me in this direction. Um, first, after having read The 900 Days, the, the, the famous um, book in Stephen Cohen's politics seminar, I almost did my dissertation on civilian-military relations um, in the blockade. Salisbury's book was gripping, and it just raised a lot of questions. I left it off to the side and did post-socialism instead, um, because it was going on in the 90s at the time. But the blockade was always in the back of my head. And it just so happened that in 1999, Nikita Lamagan, who's a friend of mine and probably the world's foremost authority on the blockade, um, suggested over beer that maybe we should combine our forces and do something on organizations and institutions. I said, yes. So two years later, reading through diaries, uh, my first experience with primary sources on the blockade, um, worlds just opened up that I hadn't seen in any literature before. This was a multi-dimensional event and experience. Um, and it raised all kinds of questions uh, that were on my intellectual radar. And there were stories that just hadn't been told, that I hadn't seen told then or since. Um, and yes, there are a lot of books that have come out since 2001 when I started, a lot in Russian, a lot in English. Um, and they do tell a lot of stories. But there is so much more to tell. Um, this is this is a wellspring that keeps providing insights and stories about what it means to be human. But at the same time, in those accounts, I always thought that something was missing, and it's as much causation. Um Leningraders, when they left diaries or gave interviews or left their recollections, they were always telling what. And kind of hiding underneath all of that material was the question of why. They were asking why are we being bombed? Why are we suffering? Why are some people stealing food and other people sharing and so on and so forth? Why, why, why? And I didn't see that being answered. Um, and so I, that I, I kind of felt that there was an obligation of sorts. There was another personal side to this. I started looking into the diaries initially in 2001 and about eight months later, our first child died at 18 months and I couldn't go back to the blockade for years just uh, because it hit too close to home. But something had happened in confronting grief and pain when I went back somehow to those diaries. It was as if they had become three dimensional. There was a side I was seeing that I hadn't seen before. I could kind of feel what was written on those pages. I'm not saying I suffered or faced near as much pain as, as Leningraders did, but there's that peak behind the curtain. And in part, I just felt compelled. I kind of owed it to other people who had suffered worse than I had, who felt much more pain. I experienced it just a little bit. And just personally, I felt compelled to dive in and not only tell their stories, but also to answer why, um, which is a question that I had really felt very strongly. Um and in part, this, in working out what happened there was also, in a sense, my own confrontation uh, with what I had gone through. And that's underlying, you know, wherever you find intellectual interests, scratch the surface and there's a personal story there. It's true for all kinds of scholars.
1: And I actually want to, I want to get into, you know, because the very first line of the book is actually the lining the acknowledgements. And the first line is staring at death and suffering through the eyes of those who face them, head on demand special medal. Now, those of us who, who are familiar with or worked on and researched Soviet history or Russian history in general, I mean, it, there, the, the tragedy, particularly the 20th century, is enormous. And the war and the the experience of Leningrad in particular is one of those really difficult moments. And I, I do always wonder as, as a participant in, in, you know, looking at these things and reading about them, how as a researcher, you deal with the fact that the stories you're reading, you know, the human lives, I mean, you said what it means to be human. And, you know, as a researcher and writer, you're a human too. And how did you, you know, address this demand for special metal in dealing with this topic, considering the, the personal tragedy you experienced?
3: That's a hard one to answer because I'm not – first of all, I'm not sure I ever quite figured out how to do that, at least consciously. Um, it was it was very difficult, and there were moments when I – one in particular, it comes up at the beginning of the chapter on death. Um, reading a young teenager's diary, and in the last words are, uh, Mother and I are starving to death. We lost our ration cards. And then it's it. End of diary. And you know what happened. And at that point, I just – put my pen down, walked out in the street and cried. There were many moments when I wondered, why, how can I possibly do this? Um, It was difficult, but somewhere uh, I don't have the same metal these Leningraders did. I could not have made it through this. And I think that's part of what helped me just to keep staring into this abyss of human suffering is they did it, someone has to dive in and take the deep dive into the details of some of the worst parts of this to make sense of it, at least to explain and answer that question that they kept asking of why. In a sense, I felt I owed it to them. And so um, I kept pushing forward and it was, it was, it was difficult. Um, I am not the same person I was when I began it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it's, it's always a question that I, you know, ask myself, and, uh, and, of course, others who are, you know, like yourselves, who are, you're going really deep and intimate with, with these documents and these, these stories of human suffering. The other question I have, too, is, is, again, back to how you begin the book formally. You start, you write the sentence, you ask the question, I should say, who are we when our backs are against the wall? Why did you start with this question? Because to me, when the the first sentence of things sets the f- kind of sets the framework for the entire piece.
3: Um, and yes, and I chose. You know, it took a long time, but I chose um, that introduction on purpose. Partly, it's it's this intellectual mission or question that's bothered me for a long time. Um, first year in graduate school. The late Marv Bresler asked our theory class, what do you think would happen if we could cease the enforcement of all laws and norms for, say, a week, and then at the end of that week, reset everything back to normal, and everyone would forget what happened? What would people do? Now, that stuck with me. Um, Who are we, really, when the world seems to be falling apart? And this speaks to a lot of really important issues. One is resilience. What are the sources of resilience? So when we're looking at death in the face, when our backs are against the wall, when we're under extreme duress and it seems that institutions are falling apart, that order is dissolving, what do we do? Um, How and where do we find the tools to create order so that we can carry on, that we avoid this Hobbesian state of nature? So that's one side to this. Um, and in a sense, my, my whole career has really been revolving around this, whether it's post-socialism in the 1990s, when things collapse, fall apart, how is it that people rebuild a post-Soviet economy? Um, how is it that people keep going on when it seems that institutions have fallen apart under the assault of hunger and German bombs um, and so on? There's also another side to this, though, and it's something that's bothered me my entire career. And it goes back to my first project in post-socialism. And that's that, whether in the humanities or in social sciences, we tend to focus on these historical contexts, contexts in space and time, where institutions and structures are fairly stable. And it becomes difficult to disentangle human practice, decision making, cognition, etc., from those broader collective practices and relations. Um, and so really, who are we? How do we act? Are we the, the rational actors of microeconomic theory? Are we primarily these um, socialized moral actors that Emile Durkheim spoke of? Are we a mix? Well, if so, when do we calculate? When do we act emotionally? When do we act habitually? And so on and so forth. It's difficult to disentangle this, though, when you've got stable institutions that compel or orient people's actions. Um, and it hasn't helped that, at least in the social sciences, there seems to be this hesitancy to look into these moments when things seem to be falling apart. And you know, the blockade is one of these moments where we see people um, in a context where it's not clear that institutions and social relations matter. It doesn't seem that they're necessarily working. And the incentives to focus on one's own survival, to become the rational actor of microeconomics, um, are intense. So is this what we really are? Are we homo economicus? Or are we something else? And these are the kind of moments when there are incentives to disobey, to survive. Um, These moments when it seems that the broader social context doesn't matter or is evaporating. This is where we can really get at, for lack of a better term, um, the quantum mechanics of human interaction, of decision-making, what's at the core of human social relations. So that's kind of what that means. When our backs are against the wall, do we hold together? Do we focus on ourselves? How do we make decisions when social might not matter anymore? Um and it turns out this the human spirit is actually quite resilient it can put up with quite a bit so in the midst of this incredible tragedy and suffering there is actually a silver lining um if things didn't totally dissolve in the blockade then we can put up with quite a bit
1: um you know you say that you say that uh going back to this question of that you've already mentioned about how the blockade has been written about um, you said that, you know, it roughly falls into two sets of stories. Uh, one is the what, and then the how and the why. And you already mentioned this issue of the why. So what is this? Wh- why? I, and, and from hearing you and looking, reading the book, this question of why is what preoccupi- preoccupies you. What What is the story you're trying to tell with looking at? Are you looking at the why and what story are you trying to tell by looking at it?
3: Part of this comes from being interdisciplinary and, you know, one foot in humanities talking with a lot of historians, the other foot talking with economists and sociologists. And um, the what is what the humanities people do very well, Um, diving into the stories, getting a feel for the stories, what it's like to be human. And one thing I wanted to do with the what – I'll come to the why in a second – one thing I wanted to do with the what was – Um, take a deeper dive into some of the stories that were crucially important in the blockade, but don't get discussed, explored enough. For example, the worst kept secret about the blockade uh, was cannibalism. And any work on the blockade will mention cannibalism. But what was involved with cannibalism? How did people take this step? Now, we don't have a lot of data about that. Um, There's the occasional rare moment where we get a glimpse into why someone would consume consume human flesh. What we have more data on are Leningrader's responses to this and how cannibalism becomes part of this narrative um, of how awful, how terrible this experience is, but at the same time how cannibalism... And the way people write about it becomes a spark for defending what seems to be left of humanity and civilization. Um, so there is a big story, at least in the response to cannibalism, that did isn't see told before. So one of the stories is what? Let's take a deeper dive into some of these things. That, I mean, the same thing with death. These are really hard stories to, to dive into, and I can see why um, people don't do it. This is really difficult to do. Um, but someone has to be stupid enough, and I guess it's me. <laughs> um, but there's also taking the data that the, the Leningraders tell, their stories. There are patterns there. Um, and one of the things I wanted to do was not only dive deeper into the, the diaries and other archival materials, but also what's the pattern? Um, and there are patterns that emerge from these, these stories that I didn't see talked about before either, like the gender, for example. Um, this is a city that was feminized because men are dying or at war, and there's no real discussion of what it meant to be a woman who I – mean, women in the West know of the second shift. The first shift is you go out and work. Second shift is you come home and take care of, of feeding and, and, and make, you know, maintaining order at home. Talk about a ridiculous second shift, um, and yet there's no mention of at least the, the, the empirical side to that. What did it mean to be a woman in the Samania city that depended upon women to survive? Now that's the what. Um, But there's also the how and the why. And this is causation. Um, Why do we see these patterns? And I haven't really seen that addressed. Now, there's an easy explanation for that. Um, The scholars who have been uh, diving into the blockade have tended to be historians. And I'm not saying that. Historians don't talk about causation, but it's not something that's kind of central in the radar in the humanities and in the social sciences. Um, and this goes back to the you know, Leningraders are asking, how did all this happen? Why did all this happen? That's really a question of cause and effect. And I felt that to make sense of all of this, uh, it's not enough to tell the stories, it's to figure out why these things happen. What were the mechanisms of causation that made gender matter? What were the motives? that people had for stealing versus cooperating versus versus being apathetic. For example, what do we do when institutions start to dissolve? This becomes a question of habit. Um, to what extent do dispositions and knowledge that we have, um, to what extent does that persist even when the structures that create them seem to dissolve away versus being creative and innovative? So the the how and the why on the one hand and the what – They kind of became part of this this big mission um, to bring together this deeper empirical dive, but also to make sense of why we see the patterns that we do, not only to add this, this dimension of meaning to the blockade through the voices of Leningraders, but also maybe to provide lessons that could be useful for other contexts.
2: So, switching gears to look closer at the conditions of the blockade, can you give us a little bit of background of the siege of Leningrad and how this was different from other blockades?
3: Um, okay, let me. This will be a nutshell of a nutshell, because there's a lot of, of of complexity to what how how this how this came to be. But we all know the story. June twenty second, the Germans invade, and they're making much quicker progress uh, than Stalin. And Zhdanov, Kuznetsov, Alexei Kuznetsov, and the people in Smolny um, thought was possible. So the city is taking steps to get itself ready. They're trying to bring more food into the city, um, which will fail for various structural reasons. And there's this understanding that Leningrad could become a frontline city. So there's an attempt to evacuate civilians, um, initially children, but it fails miserably. Um Children are taken off, but sometimes they're sent in the direction of the advancing German army. Um, sometimes there's, there, are, there are cases of uh, children are put on trains with a few teachers. They're sent off into the countryside. They get to the station where they're supposed to get off. No one's there to meet them. They have to hike on foot. Finally, they get to a village. Maybe a German plane flies overhead. And eventually...
2: How long into the blockade uh, did they start evacuations?
3: Oh, this is before. This is before. And this is what set, This is setting up the tragedy. The blockade is going to begin in September. Um, in the run-up to the blockade, the state is trying to do these things, and but not doing them very well. So children are sent off. Mothers go back to retrieve them because rumors begin to spread in July that um, the children are being sent towards the advancing German army. And the party and the state can't do anything to stop these mothers. They get onto trains, bring their kids back civilian evacuations also fail miserably um and this is this was shocking when i learned this is Zdanov does not put leningrad under the legal status of a besieged city had he done so he could have legally compelled evacuation um he doesn't take the step stalin doesn't take the step it's not clear why um but because of that all that the elites can do is try to convince people to evacuate. And many people want to stay. Now, this is setting up a tragedy. Is you vac- now, There's evacuation of factories. And that's a story that really I don't tell much of and needs to be told. Um, workers who are needed for those factories are evacuated as well. But by the time September comes along, the German army is getting close to Leningrad, will eventually surround it. And between soldiers and civilians, you have around 3 million people inside the blockade ring. Um, That is an enormous, enormous number. And this is one difference between this blockade, this siege, and others, is just the the, the amount of people who are involved. Um, And because of this, you will get something that's actually pretty rare, which is urban famine. Um, Famine is usually rural because the urban metropoles control trade in food. They'll take the food. And as Mark Sen has shown, a lot of famine is not due to the absence of food. It's just that people take it and don't distribute it well enough. This is urban famine. So we've got around two and a half million civilians, uh, 500,000 soldiers inside the blockade ring in September. Um, that's when the Germans start their massive bombardments of the city. So once, once you have September, um, the Germans have cut off Leningrad, Uh, from the Big Earth, as it's called. The Finns are to the north. Um, They're not that close to the city. They're going to be more passive, but they are going to make sure that Leningrad's blockaded. Really, the only way in and out of the city is either through the air or across Lake Lodega. Um, And anyone who's listening who's been to Latiga knows that it's potentially treacherous. So just because you have this lake doesn't mean you can move across it easily. And in fact, um, the authorities are going to have to wait until December when Latiga freezes. And then you can set up the road of life or the road of death, as it was sometimes called, because a lot of people died along the way. Um, Once the the road freezes, then you can have these trucks going back and forth. Um, And the occasional civilian that wants to get out and tries to walk across the lake, um, not always successfully. So September 1941, the blockade begins. The Germans have surrounded the city. They're going to bomb it. When it becomes too cold to fly airplanes, they're going to shoot artillery into the city so there's always this threat of death from above and it's not clear where the bombs are going to fall although if you're near a big factory there's a greater chance um that, that the germans are going to target you and it's in this first winter this is when people think the the horror of the blockade they're really thinking of the first winter because this is when there are too many people too little food um Zhdanov begins rationing in the city on the last possible legal day, July 18. And in fact, the rations for bread are higher than what people normally consumed before the war. Um, There is still commercial sale of food at higher prices, so the state can keep making money. So before the blockade even begins, food security really isn't taken very seriously or seriously enough. So that by the time the Germans blockade the city and bringing food into the city becomes much more difficult... You've already wasted too much food.
1: Was that a was that a miscalculation in the sense of you know? Of course, they 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 perhaps didn't consider how long this blockade would last. I mean, granted, how would they know? But
3: yes, part of it is miscalculation, and nobody believed that either. Um, the Germans would blockade the city; um, that it would come to that, or that it would last that long. So, and yes, there is some. There's, there are errors of commission and omission by the leadership, and some of them would have required, you know, having God's omnis- omniscience. So, <clears throat> I don't want to say we can forgive the leadership for this, but this is kind of understandable in a way. Um, that is, however, the rations were too late, where they were too high. Um, com- again, commercial stores are still open until September. When Dmitry Pavlov comes from Moscow and says, "Okay, folks, it's time to start readjusting rations because you are running out of food way too quickly. And to make sure there's enough food for the soldiers um, and to try and get the food supplies to last, um, the ration levels drop and drop and drop. And in November 41, they reach uh, their nadir. This is the famous moment when if you're category one, which is workers in military producing factories, you get 250 grams of bread a day. Um, anyone else, it's 125, which is about, about a fourth or so of a loaf of bread. Um, and mind you, the, the supplies of flour are being cut off. So they're using floor sweepings, cellulose, ersatz ingredients. So the bread is harder than it would have been. Um, the nutritive value is dropping. And you can see where this is going to head. This is when the starvation kicks in. And November, late November into December, the death rate begins to go up, and it will stay up until around April or so of 1942. Um, So the blockade kicks in, starvation begins, um, the death count goes up, the visibility as well as the numbers are probably one of the most striking features of of the blockade story. Now, come 1942, um, in February, the evacuations... The second wave begins. This time, the party doesn't need to do much convincing. Um, People are ready to leave, and many will die. Uh, We don't quite know how many will die um, on the way to somewhere else. Um, Sometimes, uh, Leningraders will be evacuated to uh, cities um, or other towns, villages that the Germans will occupy. So. Nice irony there, I guess. Um, By the time you get into the winter, by the time you get to May, June 1942, between evacuations and the death toll and the regime kind of learning how to supply Leningrad with food, um, the death count begins to drop and starvation begins to drop. And this is when you get into the second phase of the blockade, this normalization, as it were. People aren't necessarily starving, but they're still very hungry. Um, The regime starts innovating with um, how to feed its people. There's the ex- the expansion during the winter, which continues throughout the blockade, the expansion of a shadow market, a shadow economy of uh, food that's stolen and then resold at a higher price at the Renek, the, the, the farmer's markets. And January 1943, the Red Army punches a hole through the German lines. This is the Prorif. They can establish a rail network um, with the rest of the country. So trains can start bringing in um, more food. It can start taking out weapons that are being produced in Leningrad. Um, one of the first things that's brought in on one of these trains is cats. Um, because, yes, because people were eating cats in the first winter. And who's going to catch the rats and the mice? So cats get brought, cats get brought in strategically. Um, and a year later, January 44, the Red Army finally pushes... Uh, the the Wehrmacht away and the blockade ends as a military event and then becomes something cultural that that has been contentious and persists to this day. So um, that is really the, the history of the blockade itself in a nutshell of a nutshell. I'm leaving out the military history because there's a lot that's going on there. And where it tends to differ from other blockades is uh, the length 872 days, This the size, the number of people um, who are being exposed to this, that it's urban famine, and that um, it's a modern blockade. The power of the modern state is being brought from both sides, by the Germans, who are unleashing, uh, purposely unleashing suffering, whether it's bombs um, and artillery, or Hitler's order, starve, the, starve the, the city to death and then erase it. Um, he intended for the destruction of the city and its people. So a modern state carrying out a dictator's will. But at the same time, somehow Soviet institutions don't fall apart um, and they manage to do enough to maintain enough order that civilians themselves could kind of pick up the ball and run with it. And it's thanks to them that the city does survive. Um, but the modern the modern state does still play a role in both sides here.
1: Hey, everybody. Sean here. Um, I just wanted to pause for a moment and to thank all of you who are patrons of the podcast and to encourage those who aren't patrons to maybe think about joining the table of ranks and give us you know, a couple of bucks every month to get the podcast going. If you'd like to become a patron, go to patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to the srbpodcast.org website and find that patron button up there in the right hand corner. I also wanted to point to something I've been doing as a result of your patronage. You know, we've talked about that we want to do some other types of programming. And one of the things I've been working on for the last two years is a six-part audio documentary called Teddy Goes to the USSR. Um, And I want to play the trailer for you and hope that you'll subscribe to the podcast series when it comes out. The first episode will drop on May 30th. So here's the trailer and uh, you can find it on your favorite podcasting app.
0: I had been interested in things Russian all my life and got a master's degree in Russian area studies. 20th of June, 1968. In April, May of this year, Teddy Rowe, born in 1934, is suspected of involvement in American intelligence, visited the Soviet Union as an American tourist.
1: Teddy Rowe visited every Soviet republic in the spring of 1968. And he kept a meticulous diary of his trip. But so did the KGB.
4: Foreign tourists who did something forbidden in the USSR or simply behaved suspiciously, uh, this is not uncommon in the KGB archives. You would be tailed on the street. They would be breaking into your room and you will see that somebody broke into your room. And that would be like 95% of what happens. It's just trying to make you feel uncomfortable.
0: The people were getting into my diary and into my suitcase. And so I printed a note to them in capital letters. If you want to know any of this stuff, come and talk to me, I'll tell you. My name is Teddy. First name Teddy, last name Roe.
1: Subscribe and listen to Teddy Goes to the USSR, a six-episode series on Soviet life through an American tourist's eyes, wherever you listen to
2: podcasts. You brought up uh, Lake Ladoga as one of the only potentials for escape. Um, How did people survive the blockade?
3: Oh, uh... Human ingenuity, when under desperation, is incredible. But there's this is a really complicated story, actually. Food becomes like the center of gravity for everything, for obvious reasons. Um, you need it's the second law of thermodynamics here. You need energy to, to maintain physiological order as well as anything else. So people are seeking out food. It becomes one of these things that I call in the book an anchor of valence. Um, it becomes this entity into which we invest a lot of our senses of, of self, uh, senses of practice, and so on, because people need food to survive. So on the one hand, there's innovation in finding food. It can be as simple as trying to get work at a military factory that has category one rations, so you have a better chance of surviving, and maybe where you can steal something and sell it in the market for food. Another means of survival was using the, the renek, these collective farmers markets. Um, here you would find people selling food. Often it was, uh, it was sellers who were part of a network in which you would have the, a director running food storage and the accountant and maybe a driver and some security people and a point person at the market. And they would all get together, steal food from the state storage depots, transport it to these markets, and sell it um, at a write-up for speculative profit. And those Leningraders who had something to trade, gold watches, more rubles, uh, paintings, um, they would bring what they could to exchange for food. Either they'd sell it for rubles or there'd be barter in kind. You would also have uh, soldiers who would come into the city. Soldiers did not, it's going to sound surprising, soldiers did not get as much vodka or tobacco as civilians did. Occasionally, the regime would give civilians extra rations of vodka and tobacco. But soldiers had more bread. So you'd have soldiers occasionally come into the city, and either through relatives or at these markets, um, they would trade food for tobacco and vodka. So you've got the formal rationing system, which people will, play to the extent they can. Um, oh, here's one way, one additional way of playing the ration system is everybody gets a number of ration cards, ration coupons, depending on which category they're in. And when the death wave began, one civilian strategy was if a relative, you know, brother, father, mother died, was to put them in a very cold room and not report their deaths and use their ration cards to get extra rations. Now, the state figured this out, and eventually, in 1942, was requiring re-registration every 10 days to stop this practice, <laughs> but, yeah, it's, but, and this, this, but this is the extent of what people would do to survive. And yes, it's, it's morbid, and um, as the late Edward Keenan once told me, um, he, he, he dated a woman who had grown up in the blockade, and she told him this story, and the question he asked, and this, this stuck with me till this day, is, what does that do to people's sense of self, sense of practices?
1: Well, this is, this is exactly what, what, you know, is one of the things, since, since your book is dealing with suffering and the endurance of suffering, how one manages to, you know, endure this. I don't know what other word to use here, but again, you do have the problem of, you know, people dropping dead, you know, dead bodies everywhere. You just gave an example of what to do, but so what... Talk about this problem of dealing with the dead, both, both in terms of, course, the, the actual physical institutional issues, but also, the as you said, the, your sense of self, the emotional moral issues of how do you deal with the dead around you.
3: Yeah, this is, um, this is an interesting story. It's morbid. It's, it's, it's tragic. But there are many, many dead. And what do you do with them? What you do with them actually ends up depending in part on what is your relation to the dead. And really, there's three sets of actors involved in this story of what to do with, with with corpses. those who are making decisions inside the state, the field of power, let's call it, those who have to collect and dispose of the dead. let's call them the field of labor, and those um, who have lost, those who are related to the dead, let's call that a field of intimacy, families, friends. Your relation to the dead determines in part how you perceive the dead and what you want to do with them. So for the state, for health commissions inside the state, as well as for Kuznetsov and Zdanov and others, the dead were seen as just a material thing, but they were a bad material thing. They were a threat. They were a potential epidemiological threat I mean, so long, if this is an extremely cold winter, by the way, we get, as, it gets as cold as minus 20 or so centigrade. Um, and people are dropping on the streets. And in fact, one of the stories, just as a, a side to show you how bad this was, one of the stories that, that Leningraders tell in their diaries is when somebody falls down on the street, don't help them. Because if you try to help them, you might fall and you can't get back up. Now, that doesn't mean people don't help each other, some do, but this just gives you a sense of of how awful things are. So there are the dead along the streets. So long as it's cold, okay, they're not going to decompose, but at some point, spring will come. So the state looks upon the dead as this potential epidemiological threat, but also as a moral threat. This is going to kill morale in the city to see not only so many dead, but the NKVD knows this, they're reporting it. Leningraders are writing this in their diaries. Um, You walk to work or to the store And you see someone who's fallen and died on the side of the street. The next day, they're missing their hat. The next day, they're missing their coat. The next day, they're missing flesh. So the signs of cannibalism are there. That's a morale killer. So the state understands we need to collect these people for political reasons as well as epidemiological reasons. And the collection has to, on the one hand, be expedient. Collect these people and dispose of them in the best way possible, which means mass graves and cremation um cremation is never as effective as they'd hoped it would be um so mass graves uh that tends to be the the primary strategy
1: especially especially you know thinking of cremation right you need fuel to do that i mean th- this is a thing like there are there are, the blockade creates resource and institutional restraints of dealing with this quantity of of, of dead
3: yes and that was one problem with cremation: is you couldn't you couldn't get the, any furnaces hot enough. Um, so there was some cremation done, but in the end, it just could not reach the, the degree of effectiveness to make it the primary way of disposing of the dead. So instead, you've got like Biskarjowska Cemetery, where five hundred thousand people are buried, and that's not the that's the biggest, but not the only one. Um, there's also the state has this aesthetics that they want to see observed, because. Civilians who are bringing their dead to cemeteries sometimes catch a glimpse of, of, of the mass gravesite. And what they don't want to see are their loved ones lying around strewn hither and thither, which tends to happen. So the NKVD and, and the state want to collect the dead as expediently as possible, but with at least a minimum of aesthetics so as not to hurt the morale or the legitimate or their legitimacy even further. Once you get the bodies to the um, cemeteries, then gravediggers and those involved who actually have the <laughs> the horrible labor of, of dealing with this, they've got their own approach to the dead. And you have these reports in in, in the NKVD, as well as monks' diaries, of gravediggers who will treat the dead casually. And you can kind of understand why. This is Horrific, morbid work, and I'm sure, and it's in the cold, and you have only pickaxes and shovels, and the ground is hard. Um, they start to see the dead as a source of profit. And so you have these stories of people bringing their loved ones to cemeteries and negotiating with gravediggers, either for a single grave, because they want to show dignity to a lost loved one, or even something as, as seemingly minor as, Can you please place my husband or my father nicely and neatly in the mass grave don't just throw him into a puddle Um, and they will pay rubles bread vodka for these services as it were so the state wants expedient collection with aesthetics gravediggers see this as a source of some kind of extra profit because it's their labor after all then you've got the poor civilians whose loved ones have died and they are in this particular awful predicament on the one hand They would like to show some degree of of dignity. This is not just a lump of matter that's no longer breathing. This was a person. And some Leningraders will put in the extra effort to make a coffin, hard as that was, and to dig a grave, hard as that was. But for most Leningraders, they did not have the strength, the skills, or the money to hire someone to do this. So you leave the dead Um, in courtyards, in sheds, you bring them to cemeteries. And this creates this tension. And the tension is expedient survival. So hand over the dead without saying a proper goodbye, but at least you haven't handed over vodka or bread. You can use those to survive. But this means you're not showing the dignity to someone you loved. Now, again, some people will take that extra step, and sometimes it kills them. They starve afterwards. The other thing that happens, though, is you get this reflection upon dealing with the dead. Um, Simply taking away a loved one to a cemetery and leaving them there. Um, Often this is the case with children. Or something like walking over the dead nonchalantly in the street. Leningraders do this, but then they observe themselves and others doing it, and they reflect upon it in their diaries as... Yes, we've become so numb to this we do it, but this is still bad we should not. And that's an important moment. Because that moment of ref- of reflection and regret is what keeps dignity alive. It's the same with cannibalism. Cannibalism and death, people write about these as awful events. This is potentially the end of civilization. We are no longer civilized human beings, what makes us different from any animal. But the fact of placing down on paper that this is bad, we shouldn't have done it, we shouldn't do it, that's kind of the last moment of dignity that reminds it's kind of a conscience. It reminds people that there are norms, that once we get out of this awful situation, we've kept them alive, we can go back to them. It's kind of like James C. Scott's work on passive resistance. If you can if you can make jokes about the elite in the shadows, when the moment arises, you're ready to rebel.
1: You know it also. It also to go back to the the questions you posed in the beginning, which is, you know, what what is you know, humans are humans? Are they you know Homo economicus, for example? But what the the picture you're painting with discussion about the dead, and and this the situation in which you know death is a norm that you navigate nonchalantly but at the same time the fact that there is this reflection there is this recognition of yes we're in this horrible situation yes we are doing these whole thing these horrible things but they are wrong suggests so to me that what one of the things one of the takeaways one can take from this experience of the blockade is that the issues of dignity the issues of moral morality however flexible, still are important to the human condition.
3: Two really central concepts for the explanatory side of this are social and symbolic distance and these anchors of valence that I talked about before. And it's not that they have any necessary content to them, but there's something in human beings about visibility, distance, connection. Somehow we are hardwired to attach ourselves to things that we find meaningful and important because it provides us security to then explore the world around us. This is how Homo sapiens gets out and you know, develops things and explores the universe. Um, so there's there are things that anchor us into social relations. And they're not instrumental. They're not rational in the economic sense. They're, they're cognitive, um, they're emotional, they're fuzzy in a sort of way. But we look for things that are close. Who we are is intimately linked to some other entity that's outside of us. Children, mates, a city. Um, now, what becomes this anchor is another question and that's going to take a lot more research. I don't know if it can be figured out a priori, Um, but there is something really important here and it's non-rational. It is emotional. It's very personal. And this really is what makes resilience possible. This is what's hiding underneath structures and institutions. Um, And this is what we then, we then fill that those relations with things like dignity, empathy, uh, culture, meaning that kind of thing. So I think there's this cognitive foundation that makes us social in the first place. And it is grounded very much in this emotional sense of self. And you know, we the things that we are positive towards, we want to show them compassion, sympathy. And that's part of where our dignity comes from. You know, dignity becomes this sense of what you don't do. It's the limits.
2: Okay. So talking about... Um... Attachments and identity getting broken down in, this, in a unique way during this period. Early, you brought up the as- absurdity of the woman's expected role. And I wanted to know, what were some of the gender and class dynamics of surviving the blockade?
3: It's actually really striking in work on the blockade. There's very little on, on gender and class. And especially not only that they matter, but on how they matter. Um, this was one of the more, I hesitate to use the word exciting with a topic like this. <laughs> um, but this was, this is one of these moments where I, I, I was kind of trying to figure out how does class, how do class and gender matter? Um, there was a really interesting intellectual side to this as well. And let me, let me talk about gender, um, first, cause that was a really interesting story. Um, and this is where this idea of anchors really becomes important. Um, One thing about the way gender works in modern Western societies, of which the Soviet Union was one, as Simone de Beauvoir once wrote, women realize themselves in terms of the other. Um, So a woman realizes her sense of self in relation to a mate of parents and children. Um, For men, it's the other way around. Men realize themselves as others orient to them. Now, how does this matter for the blockade? Well, before the blockade, uh, whose job was it to stand in line to get food or other things you need for the home and then use those deficit materials economically? Was that the man's job? Of course not. That's the woman's job. And and just just as in the West, there's the second shift. There's a third shift. You You have to do party work if you're in the party. So women develop these skills and dispositions disposition meaning habit, you might not like it, but it's still habit, of having to provide caregiving and what I call bread seeking. You know, there's, the, the male is the, is the bread winner, brings home the bread. The woman is the bread seeker. She's got to find the bread in the first place. So it's women's second shift job before the war to find and economically use deficit materials and to care for people. What skill could possibly be more important than this in the blockade? So it turns out that when the hunger kicks in, first of all, uh, starvation hits men before it hits women. That's just a physiological fact. But men don't know what to do for the most part. Women do. They know how to stand in line. They know how to make economical use of scarce food. Um, And they admit this. They write in their diaries. This is just what they feel they're supposed to do, care for children, care for mates um and so and now they've got to care for the city by taking men's places in factories and they feel they're providing for the war effort by doing this um they don't question this gendered division of labor they accept it but interestingly they see that they can pull this off that their labor is important for producing weapons their labor is important for helping children husbands parents survive so they accept the gender division of labor as normal and natural furthermore there begins to have what begins as the status reevaluation women notice that their gendered skills and dispositions are important and that only they can do them men can't so as the first as the first winter wears on women start t- writing in their diaries about how useless men are um, it's, 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 this, it's this ironic gender revenge, as it were. Um, and many women complain that men aren't doing what they should be doing. This, this myth of survival emerges that the way you survive is you remain active. Now that violates the second law of thermodynamics, but still, um, what women are, women are, are interpreting, um, this physiological difference as a difference in you know, psychology. So women are keeping active. They're surviving. Men are not active. They don't know what to do. They're they're dying first. Um, And so women start to see themselves as a superior sex. So they essentialize gender, but they do the status flip. And this works for a while. Um, And in fact, it drives women even more to become the saviors of the city, whether in industry or in the homes. They are fulfilling a woman's role. A woman's natural role, um, and it's it's bringing benefit to everyone. Now, they're not going to get rewarded for this for the most part. Um, although Alexei Kuznetsov, who's the second in command, realizes, and he says in one speech to the GARCOM, um, you know, these women have really been making the city operate. We should be bringing them into the party a little more, guys. Um, so at least one person realizes something's good here. Um, what will happen eventually, though, as the blockade normalizes, as the death rate goes down, um, Men will start to fight back. Um, they're already aware of this uh, reinversion of status. And some men actually get quite insecure with this. And so they'll be thankful to their wives and sisters for bringing them food. And then they'll berate them. Um, as the food situation improves, um, people's sexual drives return. And then it becomes a seller's market because there are fewer men. And men kind of intuitively pick up on this and start playing this. And so that status begins to re-equilibrate back in the other direction, but this sense of gender as essentialized becomes even stronger. So there's this really interesting way in which these gendered knowledge, gendered habits play a really important role, not only in the definition of self, but also in informing what people should do, and in this case, helping the city to survive. Um, so that's kind of, in a nutshell. It's it's there's more that's going on than that, but um, you know, I don't have three hours here. So um, so that's 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 the story of gender and just you know quickly class is very similar um, in that you've got your managers, you have got workers broadly defined, you have your intelligentsia. Each has a different source of capital. Do use Bourdieu? Um, For workers, it's physical capital. They have the skills to make things work. For the intelligentsia, cultural capital. They're the carriers of norms. And the organizational managers have social capital, the the right connections. Um, What's interesting, I'll just be really quick about this. What's interesting is how these senses of self and position and importance of position actually shape survival strategies. I'll just talk about the intelligentsia really quickly. Is, and I'm thinking here university professors, artists, journalists, uh, you know that's the culture producing um, higher orders, as it were. Um, for them, they're the carriers of knowledge, of norms, of culture, you know, defined in the old way. Um, for this reason, they do have networks to people in higher places so they can get extra food. Um, and they will use these networks, but they don't like to talk about them. They're very oblique about these in their diaries. They'll admit it, but in a very hidden sort of way. Why? Because then this would, this would suggest that um, someone's more important than they are, and that they are using privilege. They don't want to talk about privilege. On the other hand, the intelligentsia look at these shadow markets, the, the rinak, the farmer's markets, as being something obscene. Um, for them, proper behavior is cultured behavior. What's going on at the market, people are bartering um, food for gold watches, money, or something else. And, that just, and this is not unique for, for Leningrad. You tend to see this across Europe. Your intelligentsia are anti-market because markets are instrumentally rational, bourgeois, obscene, that kind of thing. And so your intelligentsia tends to be really critical of markets. And many professors will not trade at the market until it is almost too late or until in some cases it is it is too late. Um, you know, the husband, a professor, won't trade at the market, starves to death, and the wife says, enough of this, time to trade and survive. Um, so you know, the, the habits, the perception of position um, and status do matter for each class. And it, on the one hand, informs innovation for survival, but at the same time, it constrains it and so in that way class still persists just as gender does
1: um you know and and finally it's it's really and i'm sure as you were researching and writing this you you inevitably experienced this to wrap one's head around this experience and you know there've been since the, The end of the war, there have been lots of debates and backs and forth about the status of Leningrad to try to comprehend what happened, you know, to to blame, to set blame for the things that happened, etc. But nevertheless, you know, the legacy of this siege casts a very long shadow, so much so that, you know the president of Russia for the last 20 years his mother Putin's mother survived the blockade and his father fought outside and was was wounded disabled as a result of fighting outside of Leningrad what is the legacy of this you know it do you see a legacy of this blockade say today what is the what is the legacies of it i think there are
3: several um and this is going to be um conditional at this moment um, i i envisioned for the blockade a trilogy of books this one has just come out nikita and lamaga and i are working on the sequel and the third will be post-war so there's there's a lot more about the legacy to dive into the legacies to dive into so this is all kind of provisional but i think some legacies are first of all there was an incredible amount of individual trauma that never had its moment of catharsis um one similarity is Holocaust survivors who came to the U.S. didn't talk about the Holocaust for a long time. Um, you weren't supposed to. In the U.S., you're supposed to leave European past behind and look ahead. It was only when their children in the 1960s and 70s learned about what their parents and were. And the Eichmann yes, trial. Yes, the Eichmann trial. But even, even more so when their children realized, our parents suffered this. We should do something. We should talk about this. Then you had the cathartic moments. You really don't get that here. So uh, one legacy of the siege was the traumas persistent. Um, and the event itself got co-opted by the regime, but it never allowed for that kind of discussion. You had that brief moment in the nineties, um, and it seemed to shut down again. Um, but beyond that, some other legacies, um, one is, and this is something I want to look into a little more. We all know the story that the victors of war want rewards. What were the rewards in Leningrad? And it seems as if civilians who had suffered and survived all of this, they didn't want to give up on Soviet socialism. Um, They'd been fighting for Soviet civilization and they wanted to realize it. Um, But this might have meant, for example, undoing collectivization, opening churches. Um, They wanted the provision. They wanted to build something new, but it wasn't necessarily what Stalin or the elite had in mind. So you get this sense of, of, of a civilization of a nation being born really in the war um, and out of Leningrad I get the sense that the dream was a little bit different from elsewhere um, in part because of, of the degree of horrific suffering um, but there are other legacies one I think um, and this is from the newer work but I'll throw it in anyhow is that is As incompetent as the state leaders and cadres seemed to be in the first months of the blockade, they did adapt. They did become more pragmatic. And so I think one legacy of of the blockade is in the lesson that Bolshevism could have been a more pragmatic form of authoritarianism. Um, And I think there's movement in that direction, which will get shut down by the Leningrad Affair. So I mean, Stephen Cohen used to talk about there are always alternatives. Um, you know, NEP in the 1920s being one of them. I sometimes wonder if the wartime experience, especially in places like Leningrad, had created the possibility for another way for Bolshevism to evolve away from theocracy towards a more pragmatic authoritarian, was authoritarianism. And the Leningrad affair wipes that all out. Um, and even when Stalin dies, it's hard to get back into those roots because you've killed off the elite that have led it and you've scared people. Um, who learned to live pragmatically. Um,
1: well, I, I think, I think in, in, to, to make a suggestion on this, I mean, not, it's not the Leningrad experience directly, but I think uh, Brezhnev's rule was essentially uh, kind of that, right? A very pr- more pragmatic approach. And I think the war experience for Brezhnev kind of colored a lot of the way he conducted him, politics in the Soviet Union, too.
3: Actually, I'd, I'd say, I'd, I'd flip it the other way. Um, remember who his competitor was in the 60s, Alexei Kosygin. And Kosygin was involved with the blockade. And and um, Kosygin and Brezhnev are competitors. And in the 60s, you had the Kosygin reforms or the Lieberman reforms, this attempt to give um, enterprise managers more autonomy, but also more responsibility. And so Kosygin is the more pragmatic of the two, but he cut his teeth um, in organizing evacuations and supply um, of the blockade, and now this again, this is provisional. I'm kind of kind of proposing this as an idea. and Nikita and I have been looking into this, but there seems to be some suggestion, some evidence that Kasgin's direct involvement with this whole tragic and challenging affair left this pragmatic mark on him, and in a sense that this kind of blockade Bolshevism as you, as you might have, you might have it, um, gets its second chance with Kasigan and when he loses in this, in this competition with Brezhnev, then the experience of pragmatism in the blockade is finished, and when we're left for everything to be more theocratic until the very end. At least that's kind of my reading of things. That's, that's one possibility, one possible legacy.
2: That was Jeffrey Haas. Jeffrey Haas is an associate professor in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology at the University of Richmond. His new book is The Human Condition Under Siege in the Blockade of Leningrad, 1941 to 1944, published by Oxford University Press.
1: All right. Well, thank you very much, Margaret. So, um, you know, of course, when I first got this book, uh, my my initial question was, why is, why do we need another book on the Leningrad siege, right? And I think that's a legitimate question. You know, a lot of people have written about it from a variety of different angles, Um, but that said, I think that Jeffrey is taking, um, an interesting approach and focusing on how people survived and really looking at the issues of suffering, survival, and how people, uh, how human beings interact in these extreme, uh, um, extreme situations. Um, but before I, I, kind of give my, some of my takeaways, uh, let's have you go. Why don't you start, Rusana? since you haven't spoken yet.
4: Sure. So for me, the most interesting takeaway was from the conversation about uh, the role of gender and class in survival strategies. I thought it was very funny how Jeffrey described the approach of intelligentsia, of like using their own kind of symbolic capital and, like, social ties to the political elites to provide for themselves, but then castigating people who would sell stuff on the market. Um And I think there's definitely n- almost no discussion of class when it comes to the siege of Leningrad. Um And, uh, yeah, hopefully there's going to be more works done around that topic because it's just it just sounds fascinating because like you know from just popular accounts as a, as a as a russian citizen right you grew up like with this idea that suffering was homogeneous and you know everyone bore the weight and everyone did all they could for 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 their families but also you know for the for the victory and so it's kind of like these narratives I think portray people as like yeah as like one for all all for one but it like really homogenizes something that was like a lot more diverse than we tend to think um yeah, and I mean, obviously, the conversation about women was very interesting and the reversal of women's status um, during the siege and how certain strategies that women had to rely on in their daily lives before the war turned out to be extremely helpful for them um, in times of need, in times in t- in, in of extreme need.
2: I mean, building off what Rusana just said, gender dynamics in Russia have always been very confusing, and I think like looking at history is an interest is is one way for me. Like what Haas said about uh, the power that women had during the siege helped me. I don't. I feel like it was some kind of insight into the power that women in Russia today still have somewhere inside them that I feel is like very different from the strength of women in other cultures. I feel like that specifically feminine Russian strength is unique and maybe something about
4: the war brought that out. I don't know. Right, how they, um, there is a saying in Russian, uh, so the man, the man is the head and the woman is the neck. So wherever the neck turns, that's where the head is going to look. And I think that's kind of encapsulates, at least for me, the soft power that, soviet and russian women have right it's kind of it's very different like you said margaret from uh, western feminism where it's very straightforward very head-on whereas in russia i feel like a lot of women it's not like they're stupid or they don't want equal rights it's just that they see that this approach maybe is more effective at least under the current circumstances
2: they very they're very tactful about the power and they specifically they understand their charms or and this is a lesson that I've learned from russian <laughs> you know you kind of you 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 understand that being a woman is a strength in its own right and
1: i want to ask you something about that because and and this is related to our the interview as well and that is and I've seen this in other in non-Western cultures, too, is there's the recognition that there are spheres, that there are male spheres and there are female spheres, is a source of power. Because women have, for example, in, say, take, take the siege of Leningrad, it seems that women's spheres under daily life, you know, under peacetime, right? Sphere of the home, of domestic space, and the power and authority that comes from that um in this situation of the of the siege that power and the and the skills and the ability to manage those situations become the basis for survival right like at you know men become essentially kind of useless um and but i think that in thinking about like this this wonderful russian saying men are the head and women are the neck um, is this under is this idea that there are spheres that women exercise power in that are still recognized in those cultures, whereas Western feminism is about breaking those spheres down. And I'm not saying that one is better than the other. I'm it's just a point of like the 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 configurations of power are are different. Or the the challenge to those configurations, I should say, are different um, in these contexts.
2: Yeah, there certainly are downfalls in the Western way because femininity is then basically seen as weakness, and so the expectation is like to break those spheres down. You just have to embody masculinity.
1: Um. So one of my takeaways is, I'm so he, he said it, a couple of points you know uh, those of us in the humanities and social sciences tend to try to understand human relations during kind of normal times right and and he's he's looking at the leningrad siege through this extraordinary situation as a essentially as a laboratory to see how human beings react like who are we right under these when our backs are against the wall right, like this this extreme situation is supposed to reveal something essential about the human condition or the human behavior um I thought that was an interesting approach i I don't know if I would take too much from that as as there being something essential because what i what i f I walked away with is that human beings tend to even under these extreme situations, even when they are engaged in practices that under normal consist can, um, conditions are incredibly taboo, there is still a search and a reflection on dignity, on morality, on, you know, even when somebody has to do something horrible to survive, uh, these questions of like community still hover around. At the same time, I was also struck by how human beings in this extreme situation still use their positions of power <laughs> to eke out, to survive, to take advantage. Right. So, you get what you get is you get really a, a, a wide complexity of behaviors that I don't think you can really reduce to one thing or another. I, I think that the human condition still remains elusive um, in many respects.
2: You know, it's funny you bring up essentialism. I was actually thinking that it's through situations like these, like specifically whenever you were discussing when we were discussing the problem of the dead and like watching yourself, watching yourself step over a dead body and the torments that that would that like puts you through i started to feel like roots of essentialism and considering this in the in the sphere of in the through the lens of the russian soul or the soviet soul like when collect, when recalling this like mass collective experience not only during the blockade but then like remembering it and inheriting it growing up in the aftermath of it and like the children of those that survived inherited that memory like Every time I've heard an older person talk about the blockade, you hear about, like, they always bring up cannibalism, but in a whisper. And, uh, but it's never for, it's always present to show how wide the spectrum was of, or how far this actually went, Uh, this, yeah, to survive. Um, so it seems like this history is, like, this source of strength, this deep source of strength and shame and is has been incorporated now into, like, some kind of origin story in this, like, heroic way, yeah.
1: And this goes back to Rusana's emphasis on the fact that there's a class dynamic. Now, I mean, in, in Russian studies in general, I have to say that class analysis has completely fallen out of the wayside. Like, it's not even talked about. Very rarely. But you can see, if you look at the class dynamics of, say, the Siege of Leningrad, you, you know, as, as you said, Rusana, you figure out that not everybody experienced the same thing in the same way. That, that collective identity that comes out of the experience of the siege or even the experience of the war, you know, smooths over, sublimates a lot of the things that people don't want to talk about. You know, they don't want to talk about the times when they like turned the other way and ignored the suffering of others. They don't want to talk about the privileges that they may or may not have had or the the privilege, maybe the privileges others had. Um, you know, I, I couldn't help think of of the complexities that you find in in Holocaust studies, which are these issues, you know, have come out. I don't think we've, in terms of like the Soviet experience and the violence and deprivations of the 20th century, I don't think they've they've been captured yet. Uh, I mean, there's you know there's exceptions, of course, but we tend to address them in terms of collectives um, rather than you know the different levels of privileged class and the way those work out in extreme situations.
4: You probably know better, Sean, <laughs> how things how 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 Soviet history has been dealt with in academic literature, but also if we think about national history, right? That's kind of like a certain kind of narrative is being created or is being adopted, uh, distributed, and then everything that doesn't fit into that kind of story is left out and i mean it goes both ways both both ways um in terms of say the heroism of soviet soldiers but also the ter- the the terror of stalin years right i mean like when we think about 1937 the only thing that comes to my mind is Purges. I don't know. Uh, people being, uh, people being killed without proper trial, etc., cetera, et cetera. But then I remember my grandma's stories of growing up in the 30s, going to the movies, dating guys, and you know, for, for for a lot of people, the life went on despite all these horrors, you know. And it also speaks to the diversity of human experience under extreme conditions during war during famine even. It's just like it's really mind boggling to think about that when like you grow up with like one version of history for everyone.
1: Oh well this is this is the problem of Leningrad the Leningrad experience of the blockade in the narrative of the war in general, because you know Leningrad doesn't fit very well. In the heroic, I mean, it, there is a heroism, of survival, but there isn't a, it, it, its experience is unique and separate from the rest of the war. And that has, that had lent to, and, and this is based on my past reading, so forgive me if I'm mistaken, but um, the, the idea that Leningraders had a particular identity in terms of the war experience that was separate from that narrative to the to the point where the Soviet government had to suppress that narrative of Leningrad um, and and given that it's it's not surprising that people would allied would look for a common experience and not say, oh well, you know this gravedigger you know took advantage of me or I did this or I stole something or whatever. you want to keep a collective experience as a collective identity to find a to have your particular experience represented in the grand narrative.
2: Leningrad, the history of Leningrad was suppressed?
1: It, yes. um, Not, I mean, not necessarily, suppressed in the sense of silence, no, but certainly it was subordinated to not have a separate legacy and identity. I mean, some people, some historians have argued the whole Leningrad affair in the 1940s, late 1940s, right after the war and the purging out of the leadership was to disrupt the power base that they had accumulated because of the experience of the war, right? Like you have to, you know, and, and one could say the same thing, like for the narrative of the Holocaust in the, in the Soviet history or the Soviet memory of the war, or even to this point, the Russian memory of the war. You, you, you don't want the Holocaust to be a unique event that that somehow overshadows or takes space away from the general suffering of the nation
2: so i was thinking about it from (laughs) it's wild to consider the siege through the mental health aspect um like so i had two grandparents on either side of my family that were in Leningrad during the siege. And my dad's mother escaped. She came as a student. She was 19 years old, basically right before the siege started to study, ironically, German. Um, and she escaped through Lake Latiga on some car that she didn't know, you know, like it was super dangerous because there were a bunch of vehicles that it, y- y- you were at risk of like sinking under the ice, which was a common occurrence. Uh... But anyway, so everyone says that, in the family, that she was never the same after that, and uh, unsurprisingly, I'm sure. And um, So living with that memory, I mean, it like literally changes the fabric of your being. I mean, you develop, I mean, today, with today's language, we would say develop mental health issues. Um, and then you pass that on to your children and selfishly thinking of it from my own perspective. So I'm the child of the child of a young woman who went through, who lived through the siege. I did not grow up on these hallowed grounds, but still this memory, her memory feels like this tangible fact in my life that like I can feel like whenever Haas was talking about the fact that this just, um, comparing it to the Holocaust, Holocaust survivors coming to America and not talking about it. I can feel that as the situation with my parents that their parents didn't discuss it. Like when I asked my dad specifics about what his mom lived through, it wasn't discussed. And yet this is a huge event in his life. He wasn't alive then. And for my mom, the same. This is a huge, the siege was this huge event in her life. She grew up in Leningrad, in St. Petersburg, So even if you don't live through it, this generational trauma perseveres to where I feel like I almost remember it. It's really confusing.
1: This is I'm fat. This is you know again going back to Holocaust studies. um, There is this notion of of um, transgenerational trauma, right? And I haven't seen it really deployed so much in. Say Soviet studies or you know the history of of Eurasia in general and trying to process that you know a century of of violence death and destruction um uh but you know if you uh, here's a recommendation if you're interested in this Margaret. there's a wonderful book that uh it's about the Holocaust by Amir Gutfreund, Freund Gutfreund, called our holocaust it's about um children of holocaust survivors or children who live in a town in Israel of where there's all these holocaust survivors and how the you know living amongst all of these and growing up amongst all these traumatized people like incredibly traumatized people and I think this this makes me wonder about and this is why I asked the question about Putin um at the end is how does that generation who grew up with exactly what you're saying, the stories, the memory, or the silence, you know, to there not being a language or a space to talk about that experience and wondering what's wrong with grandma, what's wrong with mom, what's wrong with dad, (laughs) how that shapes your worldview and how you move through the world and to move through your own life. Um, and and certainly in terms of all of this suffering, survival in, in the siege of Leningrad, what happens with the survivors after? How is this memory, trauma, experience translated to the next generation? It shapes them. All right, well, thank you very much for your, for your comments. Um, they're always... As always, very welcome. Um, As you know, I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and I'm joined by Rusana Novikova and Margaret Budik. And the SRB podcast, as you know, is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you like this podcast, I implore you to please share it on all your social media platforms and uh, tell your friends and families about it. Uh, we're always lovely. We'd love to have more and more people check us out. Please feel free to drop us a line. Um, send us a comment and what you think. And uh, as always, this is a nonprofit educational endeavor. So if you feel that what we do here on the SRB podcast is, you, if you enjoy it, if you find it useful, please consider becoming a monthly patron by going to patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to srbpodcast.org and uh, find that Patreon button and become a member of the Table of Ranks. Uh, So, you know, until next time,
0: bye! И отстояли навсегда Бессмертный Ленинград
1: Живи,
0: священный город Живи, бессмертный город Великий воин город Любимый наш Ленинград Качает лаги на небе Осенней ночи ветер Ночь ясная, как светлый день Над городом плывет Есть город не на один на северном свете, кто постигнул, на честь его пощад не найдет. Живи, священный город, живи, бессмертный город, великий воин город, любимый наш Ленинград.